Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm Doug Stewart, and with me today is Jason Rank, who is in turn going to be interviewing our guest today. It's kind of an interesting episode. Jason, thanks for doing this uh, interview for me. Oh, yeah, no problem. Um, I'm honored to interview uh, my friend Max Borders, a fellow Austinite. Uh, and uh, it also uh, f- forced me to finally get around to reading his book, which I'd had for <laughs> a little while. He gave it to me um, when I saw him at, the, uh, at FECON this year. And it was shortly after it come out, and uh, it'd been sitting over on the side of my desk for like a couple of months. And I heard that this was coming up, and I'm like, "Well, I better read the book." And boy, I'm glad that I did. It's really terrific. I think it'll really appeal to uh, the listeners of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. You know, Max uh, spent time as the uh, editor in chief, I believe, of the Freeman for Fee for a couple of years. I also knew Max for a time. He worked at Emergent Order with me, the production company behind the Keynes versus Hayek rap videos several years ago. So me and Max have, have spent a number of hours talking about interesting ideas, uh, whether it was when he was uh, at Fee or whether it was at Emergent Order. And now he's got this really exciting new organization called Social Evolution, which is, is up to some really cool things in the world. So the book is called The Social Singularity, and I read it as well. And as it turns out, I wasn't able to be part of the conversation, even though that was the original plan. Uh, But it just seemed fitting that Jason, of course, would uh, be the guy to interview him because they're buddies. And uh, Jason introduced me to Max at FECON. Uh, So uh, we had a great conversation uh, at the hotel there. And so anyway, let's just get to the conversation. Jason, uh, we'll, we'll let you lead it in. Okay, so joining me is Max Borders. Max is the executive director of Social Evolution, which is a nonprofit startup dedicated to liberating people and solving social problems through innovation. He's also the co-founder of really one of the greatest events that happens here in Austin, Texas every year, uh, Voice and Exit. Uh, and he lives here in Austin, Texas. So there's a lot of reasons that I like Max because we both hail from this city and he's one of the, the coolest people that I know. Uh, I have had many just interesting, amazing, uh, conversations with Max over the years. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation tonight. So Max, thanks for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Max. Uh, so I really just want to start by uh, giving you an opportunity to talk about your organization, Social Evolution, just when you started that and kind of the genesis of that idea and what you guys are up to in the world. Yeah, it's funny because Social Evolution in its short life has already evolved <laughs> quite right. a bit. 
Um, and in fact, um, you know, as a supporter, Jason, you've, you've been there sort of as an advisor from the very beginning, but also you've probably seen some of the evolution. But let me just let's set it out a little bit for folks. Um, social evolution as uh, – and, and the mission is still there. We, we, we still are, you know, laser focused on that mission, but it's broad enough that it's allowed us some, some pivots, I guess you could say. You know, we first thought that we were going to be an organization devoted – just to uh, uh, and for this audience, uh, uh, this is a regrettable fa- phrase, but spreading the gospel of of uh, decentralization. Sure. And and um, and by that I mean we 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 really wanted to get the word out about uh, decentralization and what we call subversive innovation as a way of making social change instead of politics. You know, so the, one of the reasons I founded Social Evolution was really born out of my frustration with the political process and of uh, politics as a mechanism of social change. So y- you remember that, Jason, and and those those that beginning um, where you know it's a it's a skeleton crew, it's the trustees and some advisors like you and and just me. You know, really all we could do was. Was you know write some articles and and you know do a little bit here and there to sort of get the message out. But as we started to to generate those ideas and those articles, it became clear that we needed to be something that was much much more than just about ideas and generating ideas. People were interested in helping us build stuff and do stuff, and that's when we knew we had found what the the VCs call traction. And you can have traction in the nonprofit world, so. Uh, to, to, to put a period at the end of a very long paragraph, we went from just being about inspiration to being about incubation. And so now we're actually developing technology right as we speak and we have a grant to develop some technology. And I'm, I'm very happy about that pivot. It's scary. I've never developed uh, actual tech before, but, um, but we're doing it and it's, it's really great fun. Yeah, that's really exciting. And, and I know that like you said, I've I've been, you know, watching this happen from you know an arm's length a little bit. We had some conversations, and then you went off and started doing a number of things all over the place and meeting interesting people. And and uh, I guess in a way, you were out there, and ideas just uh, started having sex with each other. Uh, I think that's Matt Ridley's uh, phrase, um, I believe. And and things started to click. And and what's also really interesting to me, and why I think what you're up to is is so incredible is because there's a vision that you have and that people who are, who are talking about the ideas that social evolution's about and that you get into in your book, the social singularity. And there's some of this stuff just isn't really concrete. It's like these ideas are elusive and they're, they're complex and uh, the, the, the idea that you would, go forth in the world to try to create things and and do something like like say hey what we're going to do is we're going to consider whether or not uh society is in the process of a major reorganization what what if hierarchies are actually going to collapse and something else that we're not quite clear about what it is might rise up in its place and what's going on with the uh, changes in decentralization, cryptography, banking, all like all of these really broad, massive ideas that um, 
you start exploring about like, are we on the precipice of something really new or in the middle of a massive transformation in society? And then how do you go about and talk about that with people? Yeah, it's really, it takes concrete examples. And even the examples aren't particularly concrete, but I'll give you a couple. And, and many of your listeners would have heard these by now because they're, they're mature enough technologies that it makes sense. So, you know, one of the first that I like to, to, bring, up, uh, to bring up to people is Uber. And it's now a pretty hackneyed uh, example. But think about, think about the cultural shift that we saw when people started hitching rides with people en masse. Like almost in a year, it was a complete transformation culturally, socially, and even legally it was operating in a gray area that no one had staked out yet. Um, that sort of uh, – now, we can get into uh, quibbling about whether or not Uber is decentralized at the level of, of its platform and it's quite centralized actually. Sure. And that's fine. And there, there are going to be alternatives that are decentralized at the layer of the technology. But in terms of what that technology enables, it's a matchmaking service uh, uh, between driver and riders. And that, that – um, and the reputation engine behind it made it such – and the GPS tracking and all of these other things made it such that uh, Uber became a game changer. And we all are familiar with it now and it's, it's – uh, but it really showed the way. It's like, OK, here we have an innovation that, that, that where ideas have sex. We have a way of allowing people to transact in ways that they haven't ever been able to before. And, and, it, and it was able to spring up due to a legal and regulatory gray area. It is, it is our responsibility as subversive innovators to look for those gray areas. So likewise – I'll give you another quick example for, for your listeners just so that so – not to put too fine a point on it. But uh, same with Bitcoin. Uh, the, the Satoshi Nakamoto is probably a team of people, small team of people who are in the cryptography and, and cypherpunk space who were all talking at the same time about their dissatisfaction with the highly centralized banking regime, uh, namely not, not just banks as institutions but central banking, literally uh, central banking. And the perverse effects that that system has on um, on purchasing power of ordinary citizens, you know, it, ha- it tends to be inflationary and so on. Um, and, you know, very much the central banks were uh, and, and the banking cartel were responsible for privatizing profits and socializing losses, imposing those essentially on the taxpayers of the United States. Well, the people who developed Bitcoin were very, very aware of this phenomenon and wanted to circumvent the central banking system. And essentially they have if people cared, right? If there were greater mass adoption and in countries like uh, Venezuela, they're struggling right now with, uh, with hyperinflation. They're, they're certainly using cryptocurrencies to circumvent their central banking system. So now we're in a situation where we can innovate our way around power that is not good for the people and very quickly aggregate around technologies and, 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 and jump into technologies that allow people en masse essentially to subvert what has been a mediating structure that has been dominant since virtually time immemorial. And that's, that's, that's what we're seeing unfold before our very eyes. Yeah. And what I think, uh, 
you know, or, or what occurs to me as I was reading your book, The Social Singularity, which The Social Singularity is a book that you released, what was it, um, just er, just a little bit earlier in 2018, right? That's only been out for several months at this point. Is that correct? Yeah, it's been about, it's been since the summer, came out in July. Yeah, and and this book, The Social Singularity, A Decentralist Manifesto, um, you know, you've given these two examples just now, and you talk about those in, in the book, but those two examples are really just sort of representative of what, what, if I understand correctly, you see as sort of like a larger phenomenon that will, will potentially, uh, disrupt and, and transform, not just, uh, transportation, uh, not just the, the banking cartel, but, uh, politics, um, uh, how we care for the poor in, uh, society, uh, like any, any dimension of how we live and organize as human beings, there's a, there's, um, there's an opportunity for those things to be disrupted, changed, decentralized, or impacted in some way that is afoot right now is, is kind of what I saw as I was going through the book. And I was really impressed with the breadth of topics that you cover in this book. I mean, you start on this uh, path of talking about tribal politics and, you know, talking about whether people should vote or not. And, you know, you start getting into um, ideas about, you know, uh, institutional schooling and homeschooling. And then, uh, you know, how all so much published research out there is false. And like, it's just, you know, in a way, the book is like, kind of all over the place, but logically so. It's it's a series of connected uh, I don't want to say tangents because it sounds like it's a stream of consciousness or something. It's not. You're building this interesting case, but you're also building or tying together a network of ideas in this book. So that's that's how it's occurred to me. Does that strike you as how it felt when you were writing it? Like that you were somehow networking a bunch of uh, disparate ideas together to um, you know show something to the reader? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I, I certainly... I certainly found that to be the case. I think one of the reasons that it might read that way is because it's important not to stay at the level of abstraction that um, that a lot of people who think like I do and may, maybe in a Myers-Briggsy way would, would think. And if you get in a room with people who are like me on the Myers-Briggs, for example – or the Enneagram, I really like the Enneagram, then, then we fives can talk to each other in a certain way and, we, and, mm-hmm. and all day long. But it's really important to, to tell stories and to concretize and to provide context in which we're already seeing these forces at play. If not, you're going to lose a lot of folks. So I wanted to give the, the, the theoretical uh, dimensions to this to the reader, but, but really anchor those dimensions in ways that, uh, in particular circumstances and examples and stories that they could relate to. I hope I did that. (laughs) Yeah. And, and what is, uh, you know, also really interesting, Max is I didn't get, you know, three, even the first 50 pages and you've talked about Hayek, 
uh, Jonathan Haidt, uh, Green Hall. Like you're, you're going, you've, you, you're referencing all of these different thinkers, authors, like James Madison. You know, it's like for hundreds of years, and and it's it's interesting because at the at the center of it all, you're talking about something. Uh, a term you bring up in the book that really jumped out at me and I hadn't really thought about it like deeply uh, in the way that I started to once I read the book, but you, you use this phrase social technology. Mm. And I think that's a really interesting phrase. I, I, I've likely heard it before, but the way that you describe this idea of social technology or how people organize themselves and thinking about human organization as a technology is a really compelling thought because what it immediately made me think about was how no technology is like forever. Technology changes. And when I look at society as we know it right now, the United States particularly, um, I think about the social technology we're running on and it's old tech. And I think that that's what you get into when you start really breaking down sort of the politi- political situation and everything. And it starts to become apparent like, wow, the technology that was established here in the United States uh, when it was founded was was kind of a seemed like a new technology then, this this constitutional republic and whatnot and, and all that sprung forth out of that and what we've seen develop since. But – I just think it's really intriguing. So you get into this idea about social technology and you start talking about hierarchies and and that sort of thing. And then you get into how or what might be coming up and developing and changing uh, in social technology now. Can you just dig into this idea of social technology a little bit more for the the listeners? Oh, yeah, I'd be more than happy to. I think I think the way I like to think of it, there's a there's a phrase that 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 sort of appears throughout the book that, that I stole shamelessly from, uh, Marshall McLuhan to whom it's credited. And I'm not even sure he said it. You know, when you do some research online, you realize that he probably got it from someone else or that he was credited with it and didn't actually say it. But in my mind, who cares? It's a great saying. And he, and he basically says this, um, he says, um, we, we shape our tools and then our tools shape us. Now, I try to come I come up with a little bit of a corollary there that that is uh, is not lost on, for example, institutional economists. And I'll explain that in a minute. And that is we shape our rules and our rules shape us. Hmm. So if we think about the technologies we use, they, they certainly start to have ramifications in culture and that can be for good or ill. So, for example, the, the birth control pill. The birth control pill is a technology that hit, and as soon as it hit, we started seeing fundamental changes in society, uh, pr- particularly with respect to um, to traditional, for example, um, uh, roles for men and women. Sure. And and that that change is is you know been reflected in in sort of like uh, you know um, first wave feminism of the nineteen sixties seventies. And uh, and certainly the, the the clock has not turned back to to the kind of division of sexual division of labor that we saw, for example, in the 1950s and before. There was also the war there, which, you know, um, 
uh, change the dynamics too. But there's a, there's a lot of forces at play and a lot of it has to do with technology. So those are tools that change us. Yeah. Um, pr- most of us are probably listening on some sort of device to which we are attached like an umbilical cord right now. And it has fundamentally changed us culturally. So the, we shape our tools and then our tools shape us is absolutely, um, um, a truism that I think is, is really super important to, to pay attention to. But what's interesting about the corollary, this idea that our rules shape us, um, you know, we can see the institutional matrices, the rules under which people live around the world. We, we, if we take note of those, we can see how sometimes cultures can differ due to those rules, substrates, you know, People who live in constitutional republics think and act in very different ways from people who live in, um, you know, uh, quasi or fully socialist uh, countries. Sure. And that's not to 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 say anything good or bad about those. I have my own opinions about those, but uh, about those different institutional substrates. But the what we do see is very very different kinds of behavior that function optimally in very, very, very different rules and rule sets. So I know that's very long winded, but now let's get to the idea that rules and tools can be combined in one. And that, that is a phenomenal advance in, in human history. And we're now seeing with the, with the advent of distributed ledger technologies like the blockchain, that we are able now to program incentives and craft incentive systems that are both tools and rules. So now we're in an age where we can find common purpose with people uh, who share our values and really change the game in a permissionless way. We, and we can disintermediate the process of social change this way. So if I decide I'm not going to use the US dollar anymore, I'm going to transact in Bitcoin instead. That is now possible. And that is possible due not uh, not yet at least to the permission or lack thereof of, um, of state actors, but to the aggregation uh, or the, the participation of people who are in, in, in a collaborative system that is the, the Bitcoin ecosystem, the sure. developer ecosystem, as well as people who transact and trade in Bitcoin. So going back to that example, this is rules and tools in one. And the social technologies – so the US Constitution is a social technology, mm-hmm. for example. And it's done, a, it's done a great job for a couple of hundred years. It doesn't mean we need to stop. It's time for an upgrade. You know, I, I'm, I opened the book with this funny, little, uh, this funny little trope about DOS. And your listeners will probably be familiar in the uh, late 80s, early 90s about the DOS operating system, which was, which was precursor to the Windows environment. And DOS was upgraded over and over again to the point that, you know, um, we have far more sophisticated, com- uh, you know, computers now because of the upgrades to, to DOS and to Windows and so on. Same with uh, our democratic operating system, DOS. Which currently right. only runs two apps, the red app and the blue app. We can do better. Yeah, no, exactly. And and what I think, just even sort of push that further, this idea of, of the Constitution or the Constitutional Republic, uh, you know, that was a that was a technology um, that didn't that wasn't widespread. 
uh, when it was adopted here in the United States. And now it's hundreds of years later. And because we don't see those things as a social technology, I, I think we tend to see the see it as like a, I don't know. We don't see it as something. It, it blocks us into like the world of possibility around how we might organize ourselves. So we see this sort of hierarchical top-down structure, and that's what a governmental structure is looks like. And this constitutional republic was kind of like, oh, this is a. Uh, it's still like a top-down, you know, hierarchical structure. But boy, there's more freedom and choice and opportunity within this system. And then what happens is any change that people are seeking to to make within the political system, it's still they're still looking to make it within the hierarchical model. It's like, oh, well, how can we upgrade this to have more freedom and flexibility or whatever or some other people on uh, the other side of the aisle perhaps? They're not looking – to get those same goals out of it, they're they're looking to say, well, maybe we can operate this way within the hierarchical structure and it's going to take care of these problems. And what you're saying is like, no, 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 no. The hierarchical nature of organizing ourselves, that itself is like an old technology. And now there are tools that exist, uh, tools, technology tools that exist that can allow us to actually find ways to effectively, efficiently, and, you know, without intermediaries, um, organize ourselves and solve a bunch of problems outside of the hierarchical structure. Yeah, that's right. And, and that, that's, that's absolutely dead on. Um, in fact, you could have written that chapter. Well done. (laughs) Thank you for articulating it so well. And it, and it's, it's, you know, the, the transition, the sort of, Phase transition or complexity transition from hierarchies to networks yeah. is, is an important one and one I, you know, I, I sort of try to reinforce in the book pretty frequently. But the thing about hierarchies is not just that they're, um, that they're top down and that they require these, this sort of um, – th- there's a lot of benefits to hierarchies and I, and I can go back to that in a moment if you like. But th- there's a sense in which uh, the world has gotten so complex that hierarchies, just from the standpoint of information processing, have outlived their usefulness. Mm. So th- the hierarchical state of affairs that we are used to living under, it's not just that the, that the world is g- becoming too complex for them. The idea – but it's also that you have to um, – that, that there's – it's sort of like it's very lonely at the top. Sure. And hierarchies are used to one rule set. In many respects. So when something goes up to the federal level and we get a statute that that is imposed on 350 million people over great swaths of territory, you've got a problem. You've got a monolithic system governing 350 million people when you could have 50 different competing systems, for example. And this is just for good old federalism, which sure. thankfully the, the, the founders uh, you know, had, had some sense about. The, the, the experimental aspects of federalism. But if when you have a hierarchical system, it's, it's, it becomes more and more difficult. Things become monoliths. You're imposing a rule set, an institutional matrix on everyone. So there's no experimentation. The, the, the cost of, of what I call exit, and this is not from me, but I certainly call it that in the book, the costs of exit go way up when you have this imposition from from a central body 
uh, over everyone else. So you lose all the experimental possibilities of different systemic forms that's that you might get in, say, federalism, where yeah. each of the states gets to determine its own and try its own rule sets. And then maybe later people adopt the ones that are the most amenable to their conceptions of the good or the most, frankly, solvent financially. Yeah, You don't get that. You don't get that when you have uh, just this one big monolithic hierarchy. With this transition to the network age, you not only get the, 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 bless, the information processing blessings of networks, which are profound, um, and that's for your computer geeks. They're going to love that, right? They get that. <laughs> right. But you also get this experimentation, these, these, um, this ability to exit systems that aren't working and try something new, and this competition among systems. And what's interesting is the insights of the founders can't be overstated because they loom large in this book and in this idea. Um, now we're living in an age where rule sets, our rules and tools need not be attached to territories. And that is wow. a game Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's incredible. And it's really interesting. One thing I found myself thinking about as I was going through the book was how early it is in how we have not even started to scratch the surface as to the implications of that. Like the the fact that geography is doesn't mean what it used to mean. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's it it's 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 interesting. It's exciting. Hey folks, Norman Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings helps us get the word out there. And now let's get back to the show. So Max, um, what, one other thing I wanted to talk to you about or, or something that I wanted to talk to you about here. In the book, you uh, make a distinction between disruptive innovation and subversive innovation. And I think it's a, a really interesting distinction. Can you talk uh, about that? Sure, sure. Well, it, it might require me to get super geeky. So first of all, let's just take sub, uh, disruptive innovation, okay? There are two ways that that's used, and I'm fine with both of them. The first one is that some company comes along and quote-unquote disrupts an industry, okay? And people you are fast and loose with what exactly that means because they don't know. And sometimes uh, industries can be disrupted simply by a competitor coming in and and changing the game, and everybody has to sort of adapt in order to compete or they die. Sure. But that's that's not really disruption. That's that's sort of a common parlance version of that. The true the true definition of disruption is from Clayton Christensen, the uh, the great Harvard business uh, professor, Harvard business school professor, who who explained that when you have something that's simple, cheaper, uh, no frills, that comes in in an industry. And you get a flood of people who are generally a broad, broad base of the public can now avail themselves of some product that they couldn't before due to the price and due to the lack of sophistication in that thing. Suddenly, they just gobble up market share. Mm. Okay, And that is a true disruptive innovator. The innovation uh, is can be uh, innovation in the sense of its whiz-bang technology, certainly. But it's also um, when you use that technology to create something that's much, much 
less expensive for people, so they jump on it quick. Sure. And and people who are uh, used to the 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 lots of frills and bells and whistles find that they uh, that they are a very very tiny share of the market. Mm-hmm. So we saw this with respect to, for example, Siemens phones in the early 1990s. Siemens and Motorola got their asses handed to them by Nokia because Nokia came out with these little cute little phones with simple interfaces and they were cheap to produce and Nokia just completely came in and cleaned clock. Hmm. Now, you have to be pretty old to remember that and I'm, I'm showing my age, but right. that's a good example of a disruptive innovation. Same with Netflix. Netflix came along and, you know, it was a buck of DVD and all this stuff at first. And then they, they, you know, developed a technology that gave a la carte. So all you had to do is have cable broadband and Netflix. And suddenly you had some content at your disposal to watch that you might not have been able to afford with a $120 cable subscription. Mm-hmm. Again, I mean, uh, and, and, I, and I don't mean basic cable. I mean the full suite of things. Sure. Suddenly people have all this content. And it's a la carte, and it's a simple interface. It's no frills. Um, that just completely suddenly now, who doesn't own Netflix? And a lot of people are just dropping all this crazy cable for it. I'm one of them. Right now, that's that's disruptive innovation, but that's not subversive innovation. Yeah. So what w- what's the distinction there? Yeah. So if you're everybody's comfortable with that definition of of disruptive innovation, either one of those, I'm I'm comfortable with both of them. The big contrast with subversive innovation is a couple of things. It could be that a subversive innovation is also disruptive. That's fine. But the big distinction with uh, subversive innovation is that it actually disintermediates. Okay, and that is to say. It doesn't rely on a mediating structure that has been historically been required for its existence as a system. Mm. Okay, going back to Bitcoin and the central banks, uh, going back to um, taxi cabs and, and taxi cab cartels. Mm-hmm. Uh, this kind of you know these mediating structures that were once there are no longer there as. We enter into, you know, say a peer-to-peer type platform. Uh, th- those are examples. But the the key thing about um, about dis- uh, subversive innovation is that you have some very large, powerful intermediary. Could be, um, it could be the government. It could be a large corporation. Uh, it could be some other form of what we know as power that is made that is able to keep its power due to being in some way or making itself forcibly indispensable, whether through force or whether through, you know, market power, the subversive innovator removes the need for that intermediary. And technology is letting us do that in a lot of ways. And people are just not aware of how much it's going to it's happening and it's going to continue to happen. Yeah. And I, I think it's uh, that's an exciting idea to me. I mean, and, and I also think that many people don't realize how that intermediary, it, it, it can become a bit invisible to us. Like we we might not recognize on the surface that the existence of a certain power structure or a way of of doing things 
is hinging upon this intermediary, and that's why it exists. And once something comes along that removes the need for that, then it sort of is like an emperor wears no clothes moment. And I see that happening in the crypto space specifically where I, where it's like, oh, there's a there's a way that we can do business directly. We can exchange value directly with with without needing the intermediary to like have that trust factor, right? To make up for the fact that we don't have that. Oh, we can do that now without that intermediary. And by the way, there's a huge cost that has been sitting on top of the monetary system at so many different levels, a financial cost um, and a time cost and all of these different costs that had to do with that intermediary. And so the disruption of that is is incredible. And it's only when it happens that then you can really, or for me anyway, and I think for most people, it's only when it starts to happen that it, you begin to recognize sort of what was really going on there that whole time. And so I think going forward, it, it's still not even clear, like, how many different places, industries, um, you know, that that this kind of thing can happen where we can see a subversive innovation really transform the world. Well, and I, you know, it, I don't want to sit here and act like uh, the 21st century is the first time this has ever happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, it, because I think if we consider, in at least in broad strokes, the definition I gave you of subversive innovation, think about the printing press. Yeah. Just think about the printing press. Imagine the the Catholic Church, okay, as an intermediary prior to the advent of the pr- of the printing press. You needed to go to the to to the priests, to to the uh, you know the church officials, uh, and so on to kind of to get access to God. That was very much it was a, the cardinalization of religion. Really, was the Catholic Church back in those days. But today, well, today, certainly today, but but even after that, uh, you know, uh, the 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 kind of reformations that were, uh, you know, unfolding after that, there are a lot of other factors, of course. But the fact that pe- more people could read, yeah. that there was mass literacy, and that books were available to the masses in order to learn to read was a complete game changer. Oh yeah, like, and you're 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 definitely you know, uh, onto it there because, you know, there's a reason why the timing of, of so many things that happened when the printing press happened and getting, you know, the scriptures into the hand of the regular person, um, was like, a that all coincided. Like it was, it was, you know, unleashed and there was very little that could be done about it once the, you know, the genie was out of the bottle, so to speak. And, you know, just on that same topic, really, um, you know, one thing that is interesting to me, and as I've brought libertarian eyes to my Christian faith, you know, as I've revisited um, what was really going on when Jesus came on the scene 2,000 years ago, is there was a really incredible subversive uh, activity happening there when it came to um uh, social technology, actually. Um, so it, it's really interesting because I was looking into, um, I was checking out, I was checking out the old Testament first where I was looking into, there's a passage in Exodus where Moses is, is with the nation of Israel 
and they've grown and it's gotten to the place where Moses is answering all of the problems. Everybody's bringing their problems to Moses and he they're waiting online for him to solve problems and it's just totally inefficient. There's, you know, hundreds, thousands of people, I don't know how many, waiting all day long to talk to <laughs> Moses for him to say, okay, here's how you solve the problem. And so along comes uh, his father-in-law, I believe, Jethro, who says, look, dude, this is not working. Here's what you need to do. You need to set up, you know, get some trusted men and put 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 them over companies of a thousand and have guys under them uh, under companies of a hundred and and they can handle the small issues and then they can escalate the bigger issues to you and essentially what was developed at that time was like a representative form of government right yeah de- delegative hierarchy yeah right and it was like a mind blowing you know technology <laughs> social technology at that point it was like oh wow this is incredible and in fact like you know it was uh there's a, there's a lot of aspects of that that you can still see in like our representative government, you know, when that was established. But what's what's really incredible is 2,000 years ago when Jesus came on the scene, the nation of Israel is under the control of uh, Herod and and the Roman government. It's very oppressive, very hierarchical. Um, the religious system as well um, was was run by the religious elite, and the nation of Israel is looking. Uh, as people have done throughout all of history, they're looking for a dude on a horse to ride into town and to be a hierarchical leader who's going to like overthrow the government, right, through through violence or war and set up the kingdom for the, for the nation of Israel. That's the kind of Messiah they were looking for. And what ends up happening is Jesus comes along and he doesn't come in on a horse. He comes in on a donkey, right? And he doesn't come from the right family line and the religious elite wants to kill him and the Roman government wants to get rid of him. And he's a subversive individual who says, I'm setting up a kingdom that is ruled by love, uh, that is a kingdom that is nonviolent. And oh, by the way, when he establishes the New Testament church, it isn't a hierarchical uh, institutional church uh, with big buildings. It was actually like a grassroots decentralized people meeting in homes, right? No budgets, no buildings. It was a very subversive, revolutionary. Um, it, it had a lot of the earmarks of, I, I, I recall getting the part in your book where you're talking about um, these um, – I'm I'm uh, I'm going to mistake the language now, but um, mutual aid societies. You know, the the New Testament church was like the original mutual aid society, and what ended up happening is that the New Testament church, throughout the next couple of hundred years, was the disruptive, subversive social technology that and. It ended up outlasting the Roman government. And eventually, in my opinion, what what has ended up happening in the, the Christian church and in the Western church is it's sort of gotten re-hierarchical. Uh, I don't think that was really the design for it. I think it I think it's been a bit uh infiltrated by the hierarchical mindset over the last thousand years. Uh that's a topic for another podcast. But what uh what I just found interesting is I was thinking about um as I've gone back into the scriptures with with the more libertarian eyes, and then when I read your book and I was thinking about this idea of social technology, and then I, I was thinking about what was actually taking place 
when Jesus came along and started what was essentially in my eyes like a, a subversive revolution against the powers that be, like it's it's just been a really interesting uh, exploration for me. Uh, so I know that was a little bit of a of a rant, but but that's that's what it is. It isn't the first time in history that we've seen uh, subversive and disruptive, uh, not just technology of tools, but social technology in the way that we organize ourselves. And I think it's really exciting for us to be sitting here talking about and recognizing, hey, something's happening here. And what is it that we can do to be a part of it? How can we be involved? What is it that we can um, contribute to it? Yeah. Max, I don't know if you have any other final words about really um, what we talked about or really even just let people know about what you're up to, uh, what Social Evolution's up to and how they can support what you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. Um, I just I just want to, uh, if I can just riff a little bit on on that last thing, I, I, you know, in, in, I want to. I want to, of course, encourage people to pick up the social singularity. It's it's, sure. it's the price of a latte on on uh, <laughs> on your Kindle, but but of course, if you you know you want to pick up the book, it's it's pretty cheap, and um, and Amazon delivers it because I, I sold my soul to Jeff Bezos. <laughs> but um, but it's really interesting aspect to this that I think that is in, that is um, I don't want to leave leave everyone without mentioning is. Part of what you're talking about is not just about rules or tools, but it's also culture. Culture can be a way of instantiating certain kinds of rules that are not formal um, or habits or mores or morals that we we can um, – culture is a force of its own. It is not just mm. a byproduct of institutions. It's certainly a byproduct of institutions or or rules. Yeah. But it can be a force uh, on its own. Um, and think about you, – you mentioned the Jews. You know, Over so many years uh, under Herod, under the Romans, under this person, under that, the diaspora in Europe um, you know, and so on, the Jewish people are a fascinating case study in interesting and subversive social technologies that are not always formal. Certainly there are some formal ones. I mean, mosaic law. Sure. Uh, and you know, and it, and, and it's, that's portable, right? Yep. But there's also just these patterns and habits that, uh, that, that Jewish people have, uh, and have had throughout history. And as they've, um, been relatively nationless mm. that they've had to adopt in order to essentially to survive around the world. And that's fascinating. The idea of culture as a form of informal social technology is strong. So when you know, if I could leave anybody, it leaves something with your with your viewers. And I think maybe this is what you picked up on most uh, throughout the book. And there are certainly other things that I would love to go into, like voice and exit, and you know why that term, why that you know that social algorithm. But the one thing that is to is to say is to ask. Whenever you look at something, some phenomenon in the world, some system, whether it's governance, whether it's culture, whatever, is asking about what social technology is being employed and what are the consequences of that social technology. Because that will get Mm. you very far indeed in figuring out a way to change the rules to, to hopefully have better results. Yeah. 
No, that's that's uh, that's that's interesting. Yeah, the, Max, I really uh, I really want to thank you for putting this book together. I know it was a, a massive labor. I know you had a lot of su- support behind you, and yet. I know that, um, and you know, you're no stranger to the the blank page. You've written a lot uh, over time, but this this book feels like a an encapsulation of a long journey uh, over the last I don't know what 15 years of your life at least. Um, just there's there's a lot here. I encourage the uh, listeners to go check it out, to pick it up. Um, to go through it slowly, actually, because it's there's it's an e it's a fun read. I don't want to say it's an easy read. It, it's a fun, interesting read, and there's a there's a dis, uh, density to it um, in that I just found myself highlighting and thinking about things like on almost every page. So uh, really, thank you for that, Max. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us, and um, uh, looking forward to hooking up with you again sometime. I, I think this is like. We haven't gotten together uh, in a while. We live in the same city, and here we are. Had to schedule a podcast to do it, so uh, we definitely need to get together again soon. And uh, uh, love to have you on the show again potentially soon uh, to talk oh, about hey, some, some of the other stuff, with, dude. Yeah, we'll talk mutual aid next time. Perfect. All right, brother. We'll take it easy. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horn. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.